0: now we are going to look at Luke chapter 1, sentence 46 through to 55. This is Mary's song of praise, and it says this, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever.
1: Well, good evening and welcome. I'm Jeremy. I'm one of the leaders here. Thanks for joining us on Christmas Eve. As Gav mentioned, we are on tomorrow. And uh, it's not the same service. Gav will be preaching. So if you don't enjoy tonight, you could try again tomorrow and see if you have any better luck. But um, tonight, um, we're looking at, as Gav mentioned, at the story... Uh, In the the Christmas story of Mary in particular, I'm focusing in on her. Someone who was clearly in her society on the very margins, and yet someone who was brought into the very centre of the story of God. And the interesting thing about the Christmas story is just the fact that it is a story. The claim of the Bible is that this is a book that God has given us to tell us about Himself. And that's unique even among religious texts. Not all religious texts that claim to speak about a God or God's or whatever it is, will do it through a story. But the Bible holds from beginning to end that it's a story, that God communicates who he is through story. And I think that resonates with us. Isn't it the case that the easiest way to explain what someone is like is by telling stories about them rather than issuing facts? I could tell you that my parents were patient, that they were long persevering with me in high school. And that might give you some impression of it, but let me tell you a story. I, in primary school, was not a great student, and that trend followed through into high school. And in one particular instance, probably the low point of uh, my primary school experience, I actually I stole a bunch of, school, of sports equipment from the school. And through various circumstances, my parents found out that that was the case. And I remember coming home, and they had all the stuff laid out, and they were ready for a big conversation with me. And I remember sitting there just panicking and wondering what they were going to do. And their decision in the end was that I was going to have to come with them up to the school and confess that I'd taken all of this stuff. And at the time, I was school captain. It was mostly because I was the only kid in the class whose first language was English. We had a really multicultural school, so I kind of just skated through on that one. And there were only about seven boys in my class anyway. But, um, but they knew the stakes were kind of high And so they actually came with me to the school so that I would tell them. Now, in telling you that story, it probably tells you a couple of things about my parents. They were patient with me. They were long persevering. But they also held that the truth mattered and that I needed to talk about things. They weren't going to just sweep it under the carpet. The stuff that I had wasn't worth very much. It would have been very easy for them to say, oh, look, we'll just let this one go. This is too much drama or whatever it was. Mum still describes it as the low point in her parenting career. I don't know if you call it a career or whatever it is. But it had a profound impact on me. And I feel like as, you, as I tell you that story, you get to know just a little bit about my parents. The easiest way to get to know someone is through stories. Stories in a very short amount of time can tell you a lot about someone's character or nature. And so the question that we're asking tonight as we look at Luke chapter 1, which is the story of Jesus' birth, life, teaching, ministry, death and resurrection, it's going to tell us about who God is and what He is like. It's a profound story. And so the question I'd like to hold in your mind tonight is to say, if this story is true, what does it say about what the God of the universe is like? Now, I realize in a group of people, there'll be a mix of beliefs in here. Some of you here are convinced that the Bible is a divine text, that it's God speaking to us. You believe that Jesus is God and fully human. Others might be quite sure that this is not the case, and I'm sure many of you are somewhere in between. But the starting point that I'm going to have for tonight is that I'm going to to assume this story is true and see whether or not things kind of line up. Now you might say, look, that doesn't sound like a very open-minded approach to something like the Christmas story, but I'd say that's a pretty good way of of going about it. If the alternative is to already hold that miracles can't possibly happen, there's no God who would intervene in human history, I'd say, look, if there's ever a closed-minded approach, that's got to be one. And so the approach I'm going to take tonight is the assumption that this story is telling the truth and to ask questions along the way to see whether this lines up with the kind of things that would be in a true story of something as extraordinary as this. So with that in mind, let's begin just before the song that Gav read out before in chapter 1, sentence 26. Look at what it says here in Luke 1, 26 to 27. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, Of the house of David, and the Virgin's name was Mary. Luke, who we know from history was a doctor who'd compiled a historical account of Jesus' life, tells us that it's the sixth month here. Now, this is probably not the sixth month of the year. If we've kind of just started this story midway through, if you read this section just before. It's talking about Mary's sister Elizabeth, who had just fallen pregnant in pretty extraordinary circumstances. And so this is probably the sixth month of that pregnancy. And if you were here on Sunday, you would have heard something of that story. Her sister Elizabeth uh, was to have a son named John, and John would be Jesus' cousin. And and John was going to prepare the way for Jesus' ministry later on. He was going to tell people, get ready. The king that everyone's been waiting for is coming. But he was an eccentric kind of character. We're told that he was hairy, that he slept rough, and he ate locusts and honey. And you know what, that's just that's something else that probably makes this story authentic for me, is that Jesus had weird cousins too. And so as, as we approach Christmas, just keep that in mind. And if you're sitting there thinking like, but I don't have weird cousins, I have news for you. You are the weird cousin. But here we are told that in the sixth month of her sister's pregnancy... This news comes to her. The angel Gabriel is, is sent to her. And there are other weird things in this text. I don't know if you, if you picked up on it, but it mentions multiple times there to a virgin betrothed and the virgin's name with Mary. It's an odd way to talk about a person. To ancient ears, it wouldn't have sounded that strange, but to us, it does. We don't talk about people like that as if it was a kind of a job description. The only time in a modern context I've seen anything like it was on the Amazing Race. And you know how with teams, if you just a quick show of hands, do people know what I'm talking about with the Amazing Race? A few people have seen it. Okay. They'll have teams of people that have to do these tasks in various countries, and they'll have their name and their occupation under it. But there was one couple, or was a guy and a girl, and it just had under it it virgins. Like that was their full-time job. (laughs) And I, I don't know why that happened or why it was, but anyway, that's the only time I've seen it referred to in that way in a modern context. But here it's just saying, it's making the point that she was engaged to Joseph, but they were not yet married. And it's significant because of what's about to happen next. Look at what it says in Luke one, twenty-eight to thirty-three. It says, And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favoured one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. An angel speaks to Mary. And this isn't just weird for us in a modern scientific skeptical society. It was weird then too. And you can see even within the story there are notes about about why this is a weird thing. She's troubled by it. This isn't something that she expected. It wasn't something that ancient people expected, let alone modern people. She is troubled. And why? Well, because an angel is speaking to her. That's not an everyday occurrence. Now we don't know from the biblical text exactly what angels look like, but whatever it was must have been reasonably unsettling, because every time it comes up, and they're rare in Scripture, but every time it happens, the first thing they say is, "Don't be afraid." Now, I, I don't know what an equivalent for today would be, but maybe being covered head to, to toe in tattoos or something. If every time you introduce yourself, you have to say to people, don't be afraid, there's something about you that says, I'm not safe. And so here, the angel introduced himself by saying that, and Mary is troubled. This is, this is unsettling for her. She's frightened. But there's another reason that she's troubled. The term that the angel uses for her is, is to say, favoured one says, oh, favoured one, like she's someone special or unique. More than that, he goes on to say, your people group, Mary, the Israelites, the Jewish people, have been expecting and have been promised a king who will save you. At this point in history, they are just a small people group within the vast Roman Empire. They are nobodies. And not only that, she's, a, she's part of a nobody group in a nobody people group in a backwater town. And he says, actually, the king that's been promised, that everybody's waiting for, that everyone's pinning their hopes on, well, that's going to be your son. And she's like, this can't be right. She's troubled by this expression that somehow God is going to favor her, that God is going to bring about his purposes through her. It's, it would be the equivalent of when you get like a, an email or a text message saying, congratulations, you've won $2 million or whatever it is, however often they come through. I don't know if someone's just put my name in a ring somewhere or if other people get these texts as well. But, uh, but when you get those, you're right to be sceptical. Because you think, one, look, I didn't enter any draw, I don't remember that happening. But secondly, like you're that kind of thing, is that's not going to happen to me. That's what Mary's saying here. When the angel shows up and says, I favoured one, the, the promised king that God has promised is going gonna, is gonna to arrive through you, She's like, you've got the wrong address. That, that couldn't, po- if it was going to be, I'm, if, I'm sure it could happen to someone, but if it did, it's not going to happen to me. Mary was from a family of no particular class or privilege. She was from a, a backwater town, even in Israel, which was a backwater state within the Roman Empire. She's saying, I'm a, I'm a marginal person within a marginal people group. Why me? This can't be right. And so she starts questioning things. Look at what she says in one thirty-four. She has a couple of reasonable questions. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will be with you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your, re- your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. She asks a reasonable question. She says, How will this possibly happen? I'm not even married. How is this ever going to happen? And the angel says, Well, it's going to be a miracle. God is going to intervene here. In fact, he's just done kind of a warm-up miracle with your, your, your sister Elizabeth just to show you that something's happening here. But this point, if you are a modern, sceptical person, would be a reasonable sticking point for the Christmas story, wouldn't it? The idea of the virgin birth, that is, that's, that's up there for ridiculous things. Surely this is the kind of thing where as you're listening to the story, even if it was interesting to this point, you're like, alright, I'm out. But I want to draw your attention to something about this, this account of the virgin birth that might surprise you. It gets no mention anywhere else in the Bible. There's one other corresponding text in the Gospel of Matthew that tells Jesus' life and story, and it's mentioned there, and then it gets nothing else. In fact, if those, if this passage and the one in Matthew were missing, we wouldn't even know about it. And so many people have speculated, well, what, why is it in there? What does it actually mean? Some have supposed that this, this is a, a kind of a a God must be espousing like a particular view of virginity as being some kind of a a virtuous attribute among many. Others kind of going the other way, imagine that this story couldn't possibly be true because they can't imagine anything good about abstinence, so why would this be a part of a story? Others have emphasized well because jesus was was divine, then his birth had to be this kind of miracle. others have kind of rejected it because they believed that Jesus was completely human and therefore couldn't have had some kind of miraculous birth. The problem is that neither Luke nor Matthew draw any of these conclusions about the virgin birth. They don't say anything about it. It's just in there. Not only that, there's something stranger about it. No one out of the Jewish people who were expecting this king were expecting a virgin birth. There is one passage that gets referred to in a book called Isaiah that Matthew draws on, but almost no one at the time was expecting that to apply to this king who was to come. In fact, all of the stories that they'd heard about virgin births were connected with other nations, which actually would have meant that as a Jewish person, it would make you less likely to believe that Jesus was this promised king and messiah. Because one of the things might be, you might be like, well look, of course they made this up because it would make him sound important or special or like the son of God or whatever it is. The problem was, rather than making the Jewish hearers more likely to listen to it and believe it, it would have made them less likely to. You can think of it in this way. When I was, um, when I was studying at uni, um, and I was, uh, we had, we was doing an education degree, and the, the particular stream of education that I was a part of was human movement and health science or PE teachers, and uh, we, were in, we were in general education lectures, and there was a lecturer who came in. And look, occasionally you get lecturers who are just they're they're younger in the crew, got something to prove, whatever it is. And so for whatever reason, this guy was, uh, I guess, just trying to get in with everyone by throwing a few sh- a bit of shade on some um, some various students. And for some reason, ha- he must have thought that all the PE teachers were over at the Cumberland campus rather than Sydney's main campus, and just started talking trash about <laughs> about just how how um, how big a set of battlers the PE teachers were, right? How easy it was to pick them—lanyards hanging out of the pockets, Canterbury pants, sunglasses on the head—all this kind of stuff—and how badly they struggled through the subjects and all of that, not realizing that almost half the class were PE teachers and almost half of them were rugby players. So he really didn't didn't pick his audience well. But as he was kind of getting further into it, I just thought, "You're not doing yourself any favours here, mate. <laughs> if your intention is to ingratiate yourself with people, you've really you've really done yourself a mischief." If Luke was making up a story about Jesus so that people would believe it, he's really done himself a mischief here. To include the details of the virgin birth only makes his job harder. It only made the first hearers, who were Jewish people, they were the first converts to Christianity, only made them less inclined to believe that this Jesus really was the promised king. The strange thing about this story is that the virgin birth they make almost no significance of, and not only that, but it's almost detrimental to their case. So why is it in there? The only possible reason left is that it happened, and so he felt like he had to include it. That he was giving a genuine account, and it was a detail that he felt he needed to include. In fact, the sign of a genuine eyewitness account is that they will include details that are not critical to the story simply because they remember them. If you collect details of someone's account, they'll remember arbitrary details and include them in their story, not because they're important or because they change the events or will change your mind, but just because they remember them. This is in here, not because he's making something up, because it was simply part of the story and he felt like he needed to explain it. And so with that out of the way, we get to the main point of what this story is getting to. What is this story? We started with the question, what is this story telling us about God? He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. Mary starts singing because of the news that she has heard. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. She says, I, I cannot believe, God, that you would do this to me. My spirit rejoices, she says, for God has looked on my humble estate, the fact that I'm a marginal person in a marginal people group, and yet you have brought me right into the center of history. I mean, the fact that we are reading about and talking about this story tonight and that people are all over the world is testament to that. She says, you, you, you reject the proud and the haughty, and yet show favor to the powerless, to the humble. The Christmas story tells us that God helps the powerless, and this matters for everyone. The Christmas story tells us that God is the kind of God who helps the powerless, that He is powerful, and that He helps the powerless. And this matters for everyone, because if we're honest, all of us know, or at least have struggled with at some point, the fact that we are powerless, have you ever smashed something in anger? You don't, you don't have to, this isn't a confessional. You don't have to say it, like you can just in your mind think. But have you ever broken something in anger? Following on from that, have you ever thought, why did I do that? Like, it's, 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 like it seems like a reasonable response, but when you break it down, you think, if I'm angry about something, why would I destroy an inanimate object that had nothing to do with it? Recently, we were moving house, and it was—we've um, moved house a bunch of times, almost annually for the last little while. But we're looking to take a break from that. But um, this this move in particular was just—it was just frustration from kind of end to end. And uh, and on this one, the, the thing that kind of tipped it over the edge was we got a—you know—you get it like an end of lease clean, and um, and the inspection is super tight. So if it's not done well, it's—they'll um, call you up for absolutely everything. We got a company in to do it, paid them a bunch of money, did a terrible job. Mel had to go in with a friend here from church and then clean up afterwards right through like almost midnight and I, and I was calling them on the phone trying to get a, a refund and it became pretty clear that their policy was to basically do exactly what they did which was to do a bad job and then two, that they'll organise a re-clean knowing that no one ever has enough time for those and I wish I'd read the online reviews before I'd got to it. You can speak to me later if you're looking to avoid this company. But, um, but after a long week where I just it just seemed like I just couldn't get anything to happen the way I want, I just lost it and I pegged my phone. I, have a, I got a $30 phone. So you can get like, when you break a screen, I can get like three of my phone, right? It's just, it's, that, it's not a you know, massive deal. But I, I remember thinking afterwards, why did I do that? And I think this is it. The reason we break things in anger is because often it's like we're feeling, we're feeling powerless. Like nothing in the world is listening to us. Not our kids, not anything, nothing's going our way. And you're like... I'm going to get one thing, and it's going to obey me 100%, even if I, I lob it into the wall. It's get, something in this world is going to do what I say right now. And I think that's why it's somewhat cathartic, even if afterwards there's regret and all that, that seeps in. And I think everyone struggles with this. Isn't that why movies and stories depict kings and queens as destroying things in tantrums? Not because they're just pure fiction, but because that seems to be the account. Dictators throw tantrums because even they, some of the most powerful people who've ever existed, know deep down that they're powerless. They throw childish tantrums. Deep down, we all know that we are powerless and helpless if we're honest with ourselves. Deep down, even despots know that if they live long enough, eventually they will be as helpless as when they were born. And they will go out of this life the same way they came into it, without permission. The truth is, we are all powerless to save ourselves from death. And the Christmas story is the story that we had separated ourselves from God. It's what the Bible calls sin. It's a relational word. It's when we say, I don't want anything to do with you. And because God is the source of life, that means death for all humanity. And we cut ourselves off from God, our creator, our source of life, and it's brought death and powerless to us powerlessness to us, and yet Jesus has entered into human history to die our death on our behalf so that we might have life eternal with him. The Christmas story is the story of how God entered history to help the powerless, and not just those like Mary, but people like you and me. That's what the story tells us about what God is like, and Mary gets it. She's like, I'm nobody. I've rejected God just like everyone else. Why would God show me favor? I'm a nobody among nobodies. And yet the Christmas story is exactly about that. That God loves nobodies like Mary and like me, like you, like everyone else. See, it's hard for us, I think, to believe that God would be like this. We live in a meritocracy where you get what you earn or at least you're supposed to. And so we imagine that God must work the same that there must be something that we do or something that would merit favor with him. And yet the Christmas story is that there is nothing that we have done to earn his favor. God is a God who helps the powerless, those who cannot help themselves. And if we're honest, that's all of us. The key to understanding the Christmas story is to understand what Mary understood, that God helps the helpless. This is what it means to get the Christmas story. I realize you might be here and you might be someone who's like, I get the Christmas story. I love it. I live for it. Others of you might be like, I just don't get what the big deal is. It's a little bit like I remember, in, I don't know if it was the first time they came out, but it was certainly the first time I saw them. But when I was in maybe year five, they brought out those magic eye things where you could, it would be like the Harbour Bridge or something, but it looked like just a you know a pattern on a terrible looking shirt or that, so that sort of thing but it, what it was was you could, if you looked at it long enough in a particular way a three-dimensional image would sort of come out and I remembered our, our teacher brought one in and like it was just blowing minds left right and center kids were just losing it and I just pretended that I could see it as well but I really couldn't and everyone kept saying just let it fall out of focus like you say that one more time I'll let you fall out of focus <laughs> like, it was driving me crazy, and it was only years later that I actually got it. And when I did, I was like, I get it. I, I thought people were just pranking me for like four or five years straight. But eventually, I kind of saw it, and it was, it, it was pretty incredible. I think when it comes to the Christmas story, to get it doesn't involve letting it fall out of focus. It means understanding what Mary understood, that God helps the helpless. And unless you see yourself in that way like Mary did, the Christmas story will never make sense to you. And so if you're here and a follower of Jesus, Christmas is the time to celebrate that God helped you. When you were powerless at just the right time, Christ died for you. And if you don't understand it, it's a time to think on it. To think, what is it about this Christmas story that has purportedly changed so many lives? Is there something to it that I'm missing out on? I'm going to pray that we would get it this year. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you. that You are the God who is powerful and yet helps the powerless. That While we are weak in sin, separated in death, unable to help ourselves, that you entered human history. You sent your son to die on our behalf and to make a way to new life. That what you did for Mary in many ways is a forerunner of the story of what you have done over and over again for billions of people. That you have shown us that you are a powerful God who helps the helpless. And Father, we pray that this Christmas we would understand it and just like Mary rejoice in it, that even as we sing these carols you might fill our hearts with joy knowing that you have forgiven us and set us free. Father, we pray all of this for the glory of your name. Amen.